please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 13, 3 through 16. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery? For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I will redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. I feel this morning a deep sense of dependence upon God. We need the Lord, amen? We need the Holy Spirit. We need God's mercy. We need God's grace. So I want to ask you before I proceed to preach and teach the word of God to join me. Let's pray one more time. I know we just got finished praying, but I just want to ask you where you are to circle up, join a neighbor. And would you just pray that God's spirit would move with fresh grace for those of us who are here this morning, that he would speak to us. And after you've prayed for a moment, I'm going to say a word of prayer for us.
Most high God, we confess that we desperately, desperately need you this morning. We need your grace to forgive us of our sins. We need your grace to help us to even care about the things of you. You are ultimately valuable and good and sweet, and yet our flesh gets distracted with lesser goods. So we need you to awaken us to the reality of your goodness this morning. We need you to shine the light of your truth into our minds that we would understand. We need you to make us attentive. We need you to give us retention to remember the things you're speaking to us. We need you to give us faith to believe what you have spoken in your word. We need you to give us obedience, hearts to obey your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would now, for every one of us here, shine into our hearts the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would love him more deeply, that we would trust him more profoundly. Lord, for myself, I do not rely upon myself or upon my preparation or anything I've learned, but I just want to rely on your Holy Spirit right now. And for all of us here, as we hear your word, we just confess that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and we need your grace to hear your word rightly. I pray that today would be a day in which you're powerfully answering the prayer of Jesus from John 17, where he prayed that you would sanctify us in your truth. Please make us holy today. There's any here who do not have saving relationship with Jesus Christ that today you would bring that knowledge of the gospel and that faith in Christ. And for all the saints in the room, I pray that there would be a powerful, rejuvenating, healing, restoring work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, come do what no man can do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this text of Scripture, God is commanding His people to practice the spiritual discipline of partying. Isn't that awesome? That's really what Exodus 13 is about. I'm not making this up. This is a chapter of Scripture about holy partying. It's about celebration. God is telling the people that the beginning of their year, their religious calendar, starts with a week-long party every year. It's a time for rest. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for celebration. It's a time for singing. It's a time for storytelling. It begins with the Passover and then seven days of eating unleavened bread. We read about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. That kickstarts the party. Then there's a whole week of partying, and then there's a feast again at the end of it. So this is about partying. So everybody say the word celebrate. celebrate. The title of our sermon today is Celebrate Deliverance. Celebrate Deliverance. God is delivering His people. I like the fact that God is telling the people to start throwing this party before He has actually saved them. Look at God's confidence in God. (laughs) He's going to do this. He said, look, for the next several hundred years, I'm going to need you to remember the awesome thing I'm about to do. All right. So throw a party today for what I'm about to do a week from now. And then keep partying. So God, God is teaching. He's instructing the people to celebrate. And this is a word that I think we need to hear this morning. Friends, the life of faith is a celebratory life. It's a celebratory life. The life of faith in Jesus Christ and God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a life of celebration. That's why Paul can 
Say rejoice so many times in Philippians. Y'all remember Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. rejoice. We're talking about rejoicing. We're talking about celebrating. The life of faith is a celebratory life. It's a rejoicing life because the life of faith is not based on anything that we do. The life of faith is based on what God has already done. The Israelites could not have saved themselves from the Egyptians. Moses tried that, and it didn't work. And he had to run away in exile for 40 years. You remember that at the beginning of Exodus? The Israelites could not have saved themselves. Power was on the side of their oppressors. For four centuries, they'd been crying out, been trying to save themselves, deliver themselves, but they couldn't do it. And I don't know if you've noticed, as we've been reading through Exodus, but the Israelites really didn't even deserve to be saved, did they? They grumble against God. They disbelieve God. But though they could not have saved themselves because they lacked the power, and though they did not deserve to be saved, a God of infinite grace and infinite power saves them. And then he says, throw a party to celebrate. Likewise, Christians, we could not save ourselves, could we? We could never save ourselves from sin, from Satan, from death. If you and I are honest, we know that if, if we just made a short list of our top ten worst sins that we've done in our lives, that the weight of that would totally crush us. Forget the, the long list. And no amount of good works, no amount of faith or obedience could ever wipe out that top ten list, could it? We are weak before Satan. We are powerless over death. No amount of medical technology can stop death, can it? We're living longer than people were a hundred years ago, but we all still die. We could not save ourselves and we don't deserve to be saved. But we have a God of grace who looked at us while we were yet sinners and cared about us enough that Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, became flesh and dwelt among us and died on the cross for our sins and then rose again from the grave so that we could be saved. He had the grace. He had the power. The life of faith, the Christian life, is not about what we do. It's about what God has already done. I've been listening to some lectures by a Christian philosopher recently that have been very helpful and encouraging to me, but I just saw that he published a book, which I haven't read yet, but I like the title. And the title of the book was Ten Things You Don't Have to Do. And I read the premise of the book. The premise of the book is preachers like me. Um, we start, even if we have good intentions of just preaching the gospel, everybody tells us they want our sermons to be more practical. So we start putting these long sections that give you something practical to do at the end of your sermon. And those things can be helpful, friends, because God does give us wisdom for Christian life. Aren't you glad God gives you some wise principles to live by? That's good. That's great. But the, here's the good news of the gospel. None of that stuff saves you. You can never save yourself. So the book, Ten, Ten Things You Don't Have to Do, is basically all about, you know what? God saved you. There's nothing you've got to do. <laughs> you know? And he just talks about it throughout the whole book. God is a God of grace. For that reason, we celebrate. For that reason, we party. God actually commands the people to throw this party. Because it is important for their spiritual health that they keep celebrating God's Work of saving grace over and over and over again, lest they forget. Lest their hearts grow cold. I think we, we can learn some real wisdom from this today, friends. I want to talk about how I really feel like this is a, 
timely and very pertinent word for us in particular, for the people of Christ Community Church. But before I do that, I just want to make a few observations of the text today. Help us unpack this theme. So let's zoom in for a moment. The the first thing I want to observe is our text today emphasizes repeatedly that the point of this party is to remember. This is about remembering. So everybody say, remember. We see that right from the jump in verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember. Everybody say, remember. remember. Circle that word. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So remember. And as we skip through, God is emphasizing over and again, this is about remembering. It's about giving yourself reminders that God's saving grace constitutes the meaning of your life. What you achieve does not define your identity. Whether you live up to your parents' expectations does not define your identity. Whether you have a great reputation with the world or in the community does not define your identity. What defines your identity is the saving grace of God, which is already, He's already worked. He's already accomplished your salvation. So you gotta remember, verse 9, look at it with me. It says, and it, meaning this festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. And as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. It shall be a sign, you might circle that word, and a memorial. We know about memorials in Oklahoma City, don't we? One of the most famous landmarks in our city is the memorial memorial of the bombing downtown, in which we remember something horrible that happened but then also a story of redemption that came out of that. And that monument is placed there, lest we forget. And God is saying this festival, this week-long party, that involves all sorts of fun stuff, singing and celebrating and getting the leaven out of your house. By the way, Jews, when, when they're starting this party, there's all sorts of fun traditions, like they'll, they'll take little pieces of bread, ten pieces of bread, and hide them all over the house, and the kids go like on an Easter egg hunt to find the bread, and they sweep it up, and the kids will ask, why do you do this? And they'll say, because we want to remember, and they'll tell the story of grace over and over again. This party is a memorial. It's God's way of saying, don't forget, remember who you are. Your identity is constituted Not first and foremost by what we're going to read about in Exodus 20, the law. Your identity is constituted by God's work of saving grace. It's a memorial. It's a sign. Verses 11 through 16 are actually about another ritual. They're about the consecration of the firstborn within the old covenant in which some animals, the firstborn was sacrificed and other animals could be redeemed when a firstborn son was born into a one of the Israelite families, there would be a sacrifice of an animal to redeem this child. It was a way of remembering that God said, Israel is my firstborn. But because Pharaoh has oppressed my firstborn, I'm going to bring judgment on the firstborn of Egypt and set my people free. And after describing that practice, verse 16 says this, It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. So once again, What we're being told is all these practices that I'm giving you have the purpose of helping you to remember. Now, then we ask the question, remember what? And I've been saying it, but let's look at a little more detail. What the text says over and over again is this. Notice this. 
God wants his people to remember that he saved them with his strong hand. Did you notice that phrase has been there four times? Four times. Everybody say strong hand. And to teach this to their children. God wants you to remember that God saved you with his strong hand and then to teach it to your children. God wants the next generation to remember this is about multi-generational discipleship as well. It's about reminding ourselves of the gospel and discipling the next generation to remember and celebrate the gospel. Now, I'm using this word gospel, which is an important Bible word. It means good news. And in the new covenant... When we talk about gospel, we're talking about the very specific good news that Jesus Christ, God's son, came to earth and died on the cross for our sins and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the father and sat on a throne. And he's returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. And everybody who believes in him will be forgiven and reconciled with God and have hope of the resurrection. That's the gospel. But we need to understand that in the old covenant, there was a good news, a gospel story which was told over and over, which, like the New Covenant gospel story that we're talking about, constituted the identity of the people. And it was the story of the Exodus. It was the story that when the people were slaves, they cried out to the Lord, and by God's grace, He saved them. And then when we get to the New Covenant, these stories are in continuity with one another. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who is doing that thing to which the old good news of deliverance merely pointed forward towards. You follow me on this? So God is saying, I want you to do this act so you will remember the fact that I saved you with my strong hand. You already heard me read it a few times, but let's look at this again so it's clear to us. Verse three again. Remember this day. We looked at that word. Remember. But what are we remembering? You came out of Egypt. You were slaves out of the house of slavery for by a strong hand. The Lord brought you out from this place. Skipping down to verse eight. You're having this party, this feast of unleavened bread. There's a Passover and all the fun rituals and traditions associated with that. And then your kids ask, why do we do this? Verse eight says, you shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. There's going to be a generation who didn't see this stuff firsthand. And then there's going to be generations after them and generations after them. They need to be told the story. And it shall be to you as a sign. We read this. It's a sign of what? Look at the end of verse nine. For with a strong hand. The Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now skip down to verse 14. Again, talking about the consecration of the firstborn. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? Do you see multi-generational discipleship here? Parents, you got to teach your kids about the gospel over and over and over again. And all of us, this is why we spend so much time talking about discipleship. Life on life discipleship. Talking about mentoring people in the community. Talking about... Uh, teaching the Bible to kids in the community. And if we're discipling and if we're mentoring, there's a lot that we can pass on. We can love people. We can help them with their homework. Amen. We can help them process what's going on in their family. We can do all sorts of stuff to help them. But do you know what the most precious thing that we have to give them is? The number one thing that can change their life? It's the good news of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can bring them to God and help them to have an identity and a purpose which is much bigger than anything that we should give them. We should not be so arrogant to think that mentorship, making a difference in the community is, I've got all this great stuff that I need to give my stuff to the next generation. 
if we got, if we just live by what we've got and what we deserve, we would all be going to hell, right? The reason we have something to celebrate is because there's a gospel. There's a good news of grace. And it's saying here, when your kids ask you about it, tell them. What does this mean? You shall say to them, what? Look, look what it says. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt in the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. Don't let that phrase pass you by too quickly. We've been spending months on this. Pharaoh is the most powerful human being in the world. And he has stubbornly refused to listen to God. And many pharaohs for many generations have been oppressing the people. The iron grip of Pharaoh could not be broken by any human power. And Pharaoh set himself up to resist God. Evil is real in our world, isn't it? And there's lots of forces of evil that are more powerful than me or you. Pharaoh stubbornly refused. Pharaoh's hand was strong, but there is a stronger hand in there. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused, the strong hand of the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. His judgment came. But his judgment was a judgment bringing deliverance. God's going to overcome evil to rescue those who trust in him. And then again in verse 16, it shall be a mark on your hand, frontlets between your eyes. We read, but, but uh, to remind you of what? Look what it says. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. By a strong hand, by a strong hand, by the strong hand of the Lord. Here's what the text is emphasizing first. There's two things we need to remember here. One, God is a God of mercy and grace who saves people who are desperately in need of help. And God is infinitely powerful. We need both of those. We need to remember God's mercy and grace. And we need to remember his power. Listen, if God was just incredibly merciful and gracious and good, but he was not stronger than evil, we would still like him, wouldn't we? We would even love him. Perhaps we would even say, I'm going to stick with Jesus to the bitter end. And we'll all go down and judge and suffer forever together. I'm going to go with him, though, because I love him. And that would be very tragic. We might be noble, but we wouldn't be happy, would we? Because evil would win in the world. Or, on the flip side, if God was infinitely powerful, but he was not reliably good and merciful... That would just be terrifying. We might cringe before this God. We would spend a lot of our energy trying to appease him so he didn't zap us. But uh, we wouldn't love him. And what the text is saying to us here and what the whole Bible reveals, especially the incarnation and life of Jesus reveals to us, is that God is good. He's better and more merciful and gracious than we have ma- imagined. But his power is infinite. So we love him and we rejoice. We love him and we have hope. He's both good and infinitely powerful. Nothing can stop him. Finally, last little observation I want to make about this text before I start talking about what I think we have to appropriate from this today is this. God is really saying here to the people. In this moment. Right before they're about to be set free. He's saying to them, I'm going to do great things for you in the future. But I don't want you to forget where you came from or the great act of deliverance in the past by which I got you to where you're going to be. Do you hear that? Look, look with me at verse five. That's where this is really clear. God speaking to 
through Moses to the people. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you. God made a promise. You people of Israel are going to have a good land. You're going to go there. Your life is going to be filled with abundant blessings. And when you go to that place, there's great danger then of becoming spiritually apathetic. There's great danger. And as we read through the Old Testament, we're going to see that's exactly what happens to Israel over and over and over. And there's great danger to us of falling asleep spiritually, getting spoiled in our blessings, becoming spiritually apathetic. It's dangerous. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, stay awake. Because we can fall asleep spiritually. That was spiritually meaning. Not physically, but also that would help. <laughs> so... There's great danger here of getting apathetic. So listen to what God says. When you go to that place, I'm going to give it to you because I'm a covenant keeping God, a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. The first day, the first month of your religious calendar for centuries needs to start with a reminder. You didn't start here and you did not pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get you here. Some of us need to hear that today, right? You were a slave. You were powerless to save yourself. You did not deserve to be saved by another. But a God of infinite grace and unstoppable power rescued you. And that's how you got here today. Don't forget that. Instead of forgetting that, throw a super fun week long party. Every year, year after year to help you remember that. That's what the text is about today. Now. I said at the beginning of this sermon, I feel like the Lord has a word for us through this, which is very fresh, very timely, and I think very pertinent for us in particular in Christ Community Church right here, right now. So I want to plead with you in this moment. Give me your ears. I plead with you. Give me your heart. Give me your mind. Give me your attention. Lord, help us in this moment. I think we need to hear this. We live, you and I, live in a different era of history, don't we? A better era of history. Jesus has come. The new covenant is here. So, you and I don't, we're not obligated to celebrate the Passover year after year. Festival, as it's described in the Old Testament. You can still do it if you want to and talk about how the whole thing points to Jesus. There's various churches around town that do that every year. Maybe we should do it next year. That would be fun. But we don't have to do that particular thing if we don't want to. But, but here's what's deeply still real and relevant and true and even more so for us. We are still God's covenant community, which came into being not by our own works, but by his mighty grace and the greatest spiritual danger that we have is forgetting that. And the greatest spiritual need that we have is to remember and rest in that, which means we need to learn the practices of celebrating God's past acts of deliverance to give us strength in the present. And I think for us at Christ Community Church in particular, here, here's, I think, a way this might be really relevant for us right now. Over the last couple of years, you have heard from me and from various of our leaders, several different times, a number of times, it's been a frequent topic of conversation about how in the Christian life we need to learn how to practice both lament and hope. That sound familiar to you? 
The Christian life is lived in this dialectic of lament and hope. So everybody say lament. Hope. Lament is the spiritual discipline of naming the brokenness of the world. A whole bunch of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. We got a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. The prophets of the Old Testament are filled with lament. Jesus laments frequently. He grieves. He weeps over Jerusalem. Naming the brokenness of the world. Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus also says, woe to those who rejoice now. So there's a sense in which disciples of Jesus Christ are people whom the gospel and the spirit of God and the scriptures have made particularly sensitive to the pain and brokenness of the world. We learn to grieve it. We learn to name it. That's lament. And in the Bible, lament is always connected, though, to hope. And hope is saying, though in the present things are very broken, we look forward with confidence to a day in which everything that is broken is fixed by God. We look forward to a day in which every wound is healed, in which every wrong is righted, in which we're delivered not only from the consequences of our sin, but from all presence of evil and sin and chaos in the universe. And in other words, we look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Right. So we live between lament and hope. But what I want to say today is this. And I'm pleading with you. Give me your attention. Give me your heart. Give me your mind. I think we need to add to that. Because if we only ever talk about lament and hope, we end up having this basic disposition that says everything's terrible, but it's going to be good when Jesus comes. Now, does that strike you as capturing the whole of the biblical attitude towards life? How about Philippians? How about Philippians 4, 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. What? Rejoice. I think we need to add to this equation of deeper emphasis upon thanksgiving and celebration and rejoicing, which is based not merely on future hope. We long for Jesus to come back because we know the world's still messed up now, right? We're going to be honest about that. But on the fact that already, already God has done for us so much more than we could ever deserve. What are the gifts that we already have? Already God became flesh to reveal his character and nature to us. Already Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So the power of Satan was broken. Already Jesus rose from the grave. Already God sent the Holy Spirit to fill his church. Already you and I can walk through life knowing that not only our top ten list, but all the sins that we have ever committed are right now, present tense, under the blood of Jesus. There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. The burden has been lifted. Already we have risen with Christ. Paul taught us in Ephesians already we are present tense seated with Christ in the heavenly places, which means there's a spiritual invisible realm within which every ordinary Christian who trusts in Jesus has already been given authority as citizens of God's kingdom over all the powers of darkness in the world. Already God has brought us together. And even when we are frustrating each other, learning how to live together and love each other, we are family. That's an accomplished fact. In Jesus Christ. Already we're justified. And God's eternal sentence has been declared. These kids are mine. Already we've been adopted into the family of God. Already the grace of God is actively, progressively setting us free from the enslaving power of sin. And teaching us to walk in holiness and joy. We've got a lot to celebrate. That's what I'm trying to say. And if all we ever do is lament and hope, we might just get grumpy. 
you know, and we might like, look, we need to lament. We need both of these because there's a lot of pain in the world. There's a lot of fatherlessness in our community. There's a lot of brokenness along lines of economics and ethnicity. We live in a in a country with many scars. Wouldn't it be nice just to forget the whole history of America so we could just like each other and get past all this stuff? We've got a lot of baggage. We've got a lot of pain. We've got a lot of brokenness. But what we could say is we're waiting on the consummation of Christ's victory, but the decisive battle has already been won. It's already been won. And we're already our identity and our destiny is already determined by that victory of Christ. So let's be thankful. Maybe we'll be a little less grumpy, a little less irritable. Maybe we'll be a little more gracious Maybe there will be a little more tone of joy because the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. And that's not just joy based on one day we're going to be all right. It's joy based on Jesus has already won the decisive victory. And the things that divide us now are are really small compared to the things that already unite us now. Now. So how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of ways that we do this. Ultimately, this is just about believing the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Are there reminders that we can give ourselves? Sure. I mean, here's a few thoughts. You want some practical thoughts? I mean, we can still, you don't have to do it. You don't have to have to do it, I guess, to be saved. (laughs) But this might be helpful. I mean, when we come together, I mean, we really should come together every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. You might look it up in the Bible. When we come together... Week after week, what are we really doing here? The reason the early church started meeting on Sunday is because that's the day Jesus rose from the grave. We're celebrating the reality of the resurrection. And when we go to the Lord's table every week, guess guess which feast that fulfilled? The Passover feast. The, The Lord's Supper was instituted in the Passover feast. And so this is our reminder week after week. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh was our Passover lamb. And every time we appropriate that, we say, we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, but we're also remembering what Jesus did in the past. So we are already free while we're on our way to the promised land. We're already free in Christ, and we're already one family eating one bread, even though we're struggling to learn how to live that out. The three high days of the Christian calendar are Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Early Christians... Just build in the tradition. You, you don't have to do it. It's, it's not in the Bible, but I think it's a good tradition of punctuating the Christian calendar every year with Christmas, Easter and Pentecost. The three high days. Christmas. These traditions were made in the northern hemisphere hemisphere. Right now, most Christians live in the global south. I don't know if they're about to switch the dates on everything, but these traditions were made in the nor- northern hemisphere and the dates were not arbitrary. Christmas is in the. Dead of winter, it's connected to the winter solstice when it looks like everything's going to get terrible and dark and cold forever. But now the tide just begins to turn. And at that moment, the church made its festival to celebrate when it seemed totally hopeless. God himself entered into creation to redeem us. And we can celebrate that year after year. Then comes springtime. Everything's erupting with new life. The promise of new life is here. And that's when we remember the suffering servant who suffered for us rose victoriously as the lamb. That was the first fruits of the resurrection. And we celebrate it year after year. It's already accomplished. And then two weeks from now is going to be Pentecost. Jerry Stevenson about to preach a dope sermon on Ephesians 5 and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. Make sure you come two weeks from now. Pentecost is that moment in which Jesus on the throne sent the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of God's coming kingdom. 
so that we could all taste the goodness of heaven invading this place, of God's future invading the present, and be united, bound together in the love of the Holy Spirit and empowered for the work that he's given us to do. Those are the three high and holy days. Maybe we should party. Maybe we should celebrate them together. I just want to throw out to you some open-ended questions for your own life. You might jot these down and pray, ponder them this week. How do you, like you personally as an individual, how do you celebrate God's gracious act of deliverance in your life? How do you celebrate God's gracious act of deliverance in your life? You might want to think about this. I would guess that if some of us did some serious self-examination about what's the ratio of the amount of time we spend complaining about the present brokenness of the world compared with the amount of time we spend thanking God for and celebrating his grace in the world, especially as it comes to us through his son, Jesus, and through his people in the church, the, the ratio might be less than ideal. You know what I'm saying? So we should maybe ponder the question, how do you personally celebrate God's gracious acts of deliverance in your life? What practices remind you of how good God has been to you and of how far he has brought you? When I get discouraged, I'm thinking about where I want to be rather than where I came from. If I think about where God found me, then I'm like, glory to Jesus. It's a good day, right? What practices remind you of how good God has been to you to get you to this point? Would it be good for your soul to spend more time throwing holy parties that are consecrated by the word of God and prayer? What does it look for you individually? What does it look for us as a community to really be a celebratory community in which we say what God has done for us by grace really defines who we are? It's my prayer that in the weeks and months and years to come, the Holy Spirit would do a work among us, not only sensitizing us to the brokenness of the world, that doesn't go away, not only awakening us a hope in the second coming of Jesus, but teaching us to be people that overflow with rejoicing and thanksgiving and celebration for the goodness of what God has already accomplished. Now, I want to end on this note. Here's what I don't want. I know some of you, I know, I know us in human nature well enough that some of you are thinking right now something like this. Okay, here's one more thing I need to do in order to be a good Christian. Right? And some of you may be feeling stressed about it. Man, I haven't been celebrating enough. What kind of Christian am I? I don't even celebrate God's goodness. I must not even really love Jesus. Because I can't remember the last time I had a holy party. <laughs> Actually, here's what I want you to hear today. Relax. Right? Relax. Relax. God has already done everything that's necessary to save you. God has already done everything that's necessary for your salvation and eternal joy. Rest in that. Rest in that. The Christian life is a life of joyfully resting in the glorious truth that God has already done the great work. As we rest in that truth by faith, by faith, just believing what God has done for us. We gradually learn to rejoice. It starts flowing out of us. We learn to recognize how good God is and how good our situation really is as Christians. I mean, sure, there's a lot of brokenness and pain in our lives, but look how good we've got it. We're forgiven. We're going to heaven. We've got a family that wants to walk with us through thick and thin. Sometimes we complain about them more than we give thanks for them. 
need to learn to pray Psalm 16.3. As for the saints in the land, that just means all of my brothers and sisters. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We learn to celebrate God. We learn to recognize how good we've already got it in Christ. And this celebration then needs an outlet. And it spills over into acts of sacrificial love. Acts of humble service. Acts of mission. Disciple making. Good works. We don't do these things in order to make God like us. He already loved us enough to die for us. We don't do these things in order to prove to ourselves that we're good Christians because it's our confession. I am what I am by the grace of God, by the grace of God alone. We do these things really just as an act of celebration and gratitude because we want the next generation to know the goodness of our God. Our joy needs an outlet. And that spirit, I want to invite you to stand with me as we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. And I just want to say to you, you are free. You are not a slave. You are free, not because of what you do, but because of what God has already done by grace. I want to say a prayer for us as we get ready to go to the Lord's table. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have acted by grace time and time again, that you led your people out of slavery in Egypt, that you gave them a good land, that you sent your prophets to speak to them, and most of all, that you sent our Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us. We confess our sin and we place our faith in Jesus. And we want to right now say, as a people, as a body, thank you, Lord, for what you've already done. We rejoice. We celebrate who you are and what you've already done for us by grace. And I ask that you would bless the bread, bless the cup. Touch our hearts with new faith and joy today. I I ask that your Holy Spirit would rush through us like a mighty rushing wind today teaching us to rejoice in Christ and to love one another. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.